0: Welcome to The Upload. I'm Allison Bektesh. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're well. This week, the amazing life of Art Daily, whom Aspen lost on Monday. How the Aspen School District is leading the local strategy on long-term free COVID testing. The final stages of the first step of an updated Aspen Airport. And of course, skiing. That and more coming up on The Upload. Welcome to The <laughs> Upload, I'm Alison Bektesh. In order to fill us in on all that has happened this week, I'm joined by Megan Tackett. Hi, Megan, thanks for joining. Hi, Allison. thanks for having me. Of course, and Madeline Osberger. Hi, Matt, how are you? I'm doing
1: great. It's great to be here after a little bit of an absence. From the love Upload.
0: having you back on the show. Thanks. Um, and we're going to go right to you with our, our sad news of the week. We did have some news this week that our former city councilman, a local attorney, well-known father and kind of shaman of the town for, for those of us who are all grieving, um, passed away in his sleep art daily. And, yes. and it's just, it is funny that he's the one he and his wife, Allison, you know, that we turn to, um, with grief because they kind of met in that way and have been those pillars for the community. Um, I'm hoping you'll share a little bit about his story that, that led to him taking on that role in our community.
1: Wow. Well, his his story is pretty amazing. Um, but we'll start with not the sad part. You know, okay. Came here in 1969, and I did read in um, his obituary in the other paper that he had maybe a little trouble at school. He got in trouble at Duke University and then Colorado College as well. So you could kind of see that a glimmer in his eye. A little
0: bit of a ragamuffin. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And I have to say he's a
1: handsome, very distinguished man, and you know, tall. I first um, encountered him when my daughter was at Wildwood and he was, had his uh, third family, I guess, for lack of a better term there, the children. So Art, um, you know, working as an attorney for Holland and Hart. And he was, he started as the assistant city attorney. And I think he told the the Aspen Daily News that that was like his favorite job. It was sort of a (laughs) part-time job. But I think we all have to grow up and then get a full-time job. So he endeavored with that. But then, um, he was married to Lorna, who was a hot air pilot. I remember when they were married and she, I took a race car driving class with her out in Woody Creek,
2: wow. Talk about an
1: adventurous soul. And she had worked for the unicorn balloons, which was the preeminent balloon company at the time. And I think she moved to France to race hot air balloons. Um, and then he, his second wife was Kathy Krieger Daly, who wrote the most amazing book, The, um, the Quiet Years, the, the seminal book. I mean, honestly, and then she died, I believe, in the same year or, or shortly thereafter publication of that book. By ears. Wow,
0: I didn't realize that connection.
1: Very, very close uh, timing there. Didn't get to enjoy the the glory of that because that's one of the coffee table books I think that we in Aspen look at. It's like, you know, I've got Mary Hayes right in front of me. I pulled out the story of Aspen to see if there was anything of Art in there, and, and wow. um, you know. so. But in 1995, in February, uh, Kathy with well, the whole family, um, Kathy and Art, Art was driving, and then it was Tanner and Shay. I guess they were in the back seat, the two sons and they were driving through Glenwood Canyon on the way back from Vail. They were in a Mites hockey tournament and oh my God, Boulder Falls and it's fatal for everyone except Art. So the the sheer grief and just to have to deal with that, um, I think the whole community was in complete mourning. I mean, we're in mourning about his passing, but that incident and him getting through that, that was a life changer for, Aspen at the time, um, a good friend of mine who had worked for the Associated Press at the time, Robert Weller, he covered that and it was so, he would go on to cover Columbine a few years later, but wow. um, but the Daily Story, it resonated with him so much and and I think it was really affected him and he would talk about that for years after, just how that, and he went to the, the bench, and he lived in Denver, you know, he went to the bench in the park, uh, it's in Heron Park, there's a bench in that memoir. So, you know, fast forward then, uh, a few more months, Art is grieving and he gets a letter from a total stranger, um, Alison, great name. And she <laughs> had, had uh, you know expressed her sympathy. Her, her brother had committed suicide a few months or I don't know, it was not that long of a time before. And she really reached out to him. They met, they courted. They got married. I mean, it's a wonderful story. You talk about second and third chances and, and Art had tragedy, but he was really blessed in so many ways. And that's why I think he and, and um, Allison giving back. So she started Pathfinders, or I don't know if she founded it, but she was the director and still, and has helped people with cancer and people grieving and, and loss and just... So here we are at the point where we've come full circle and then now it's our time to provide support to Allison and their family and Piper and the boys. That's That's
0: a beautiful wrap up, Madeline. Yeah. I I, thank you so much for giving us that detail of of that insight. And, um, it's not something that you would know, right? Because he was also, um, involved civically as a, a city council member prior to that. Um, as you said, coming back from the, from the hockey tournament, um, during this tragedy, but stayed involved in junior hockey and there's a legacy award or legacy, um, scholarship as well based in this. And so you would see him on the rink and and in town and being so caring of other people, you know, not walking around town, had hung down and, and oh, pity me. Like that story wasn't what he wore on his back when he stepped out the door.
1: Right, right. You would just see him and he just radiated this. I don't know. He's just a special guy. He was from New Jersey and And just, you know, came out here probably like a lot of the ski bums. When I asked Tim Patrell, who was a little, he was maybe five or six years younger than Art was. But just, you know, again, those early days of the 70s and how everybody was just free and hanging out. And I think that Art lived a very full life. And that's a wonderful thing.
0: You did the you know, the hardest work that we do as reporters of calling the those who just found out that they lost their friend, their loved one. Um, when we do a piece like this, you do reach out because you want those comments. You want the the person's legacy to be remembered and you want the people who re- are really caring to be quoted. But of course, you're calling the people who are grieving the most. You, have, you had a ton of sources in the piece. It was a beautiful tribute. Was there some themes? Did people bring up the same thing over and over again when they were reflecting on art? just that he was kind and warm hearted. And, and that, that
1: was, that was resonating. And it was interesting cause I've been in this position before where I've had to call people. Sometimes they don't know, but this, it was like wildfire, everybody yeah. in town and it was on everybody's lips and it was on Facebook and and just astonishing probably because of of his giving and, and Allison's, you know, the pathfinders and everything. A, a very good friend of mine who, has cancer and she has just been recipient of their largesse. And of course she was quite broken up. So people I didn't quote as well.
0: So Art was on council when I first got to town and and was reporting. It was neat to hear council, of course, Monday night acknowledge that Art had passed and some of the people who had worked with him including Anne Mullins um, who said, we were on the kind of quiet end of the table. But uh, when he talked, it was because he had thought something out you know, thoroughly, and he, he was ready to say it. And I know that hit her really hard. The other person who um, I watched it hit hard was Skippy Mezzaro. And, um, you you know, at first you wouldn't know that connection, but Art was very, very supportive of the Next Gen Commission. Um, and that next generation, Art was one of Skippy Mezzaro for both his council runs, one of his, um, he was on the campaign. And so I think he also did a good job. You know, a lot of those 70s ski bums they had a great time and they don't understand why, uh, the next generation of, of 25 year olds who come to town in the two thousands, instead of the seventies, um, can't make it work in the same way or or have different needs or desires. Um, and I don't think he got that drawbridge style. I think he wanted to keep making Aspen as fun for the next generation of ski bums and, and citizens, you know, I think he did a good job of that multi-generational connections.
1: Well, if Skippy learned from art, then that's the good mentor and good mentors are hard to find. So
0: certainly thanks so much for doing that beautiful piece, Madeline. Well, Megan, it's not a surprise. The next thing I want to talk about is COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> you did a story recently about the Aspen schools who, and how they're going to keep doling out testing or what their testing strategy is. I'm not sure that I realize that some students are even back in the classroom
2: yeah so the cottage preschool never closed they stayed open um but uh, yeah, the elementary kindergartners through fourth grade, they are back in the school as if it was quote unquote normal, um, you know, regular school bus drop off pickup schedules, all that good stuff. Um, still implementing all the normal safety protocols that they had when they first got those kids back in the classroom. Um, and then it's interesting, right, because the fifth and sixth graders, they returned to their cohort model, So it's one week on in classroom and then one week virtual. And then there's two groups that swap back and forth. Um, I have some very dear friends who are middle school teachers. I cannot imagine. I think that that is such a challenging age group anyway. You know, kids are really coming into their personalities and figuring out their own social dynamics and communication styles. And there's just so much change that happens at that age. And to be a teacher who usually helps oversee some of that transition in, in a responsible way and be that mentor, right? Speaking of mentors, to have to do that in a managing two different groups on virtual platforms versus in classroom, I mean, just, I can't even imagine the nuances that they are seeing um, in, in, in some of that development in those kids right now. So I'm just so impressed, but that is, that is the plan right now is that they are, back in one week on one week off in two different groups that swap back and forth i'm Um, glad you
0: brought up the the empathy for the teachers there the first thing i thought about was the parents like those parents who were trying to raise that exact age group in a living room while they're working from home or had to stay at home and um and not go to work so that their 10 year old wasn't home unsupervised Um, now to be now to call your employer and be like okay I can come into the office or the restaurant or the shop or whatever, but only every other week. So get me on the schedule like that. And then also if there's a breakout, like, you know, if we have to quarantine again, then we're going to be back home. I mean, the relief of having the teachers essentially raise your kid for you during the day while you're out doing your job and, but having it be unsteady, like it's just still not at the place where you could plan for, okay. Or if you're out of work, like I'm going to go get a job, you know, like it's not steady enough yet.
2: Right. No, they're, they're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, for everybody involved right now. And of course, the goal is to be able to safely return to the classrooms in a more full-time capacity, but they're not there right now. Um, you know, and, and talk about seventh and eighth graders, high schoolers, you know, they're all still completely remote. Um, uh, and, you know, will be at least until the new year, Um, you know, what was absolutely crazy to me that I hadn't really considered, you know, certainly I didn't think that I would spend my life to live through a moment of like a, hopefully 100 year pandemic, right, knock on wood. Um, But uh, I never thought I would talk to a superintendent of a school district about managing, returning to school during a pandemic and hearing the the benchmark that everyone is looking forward to is the transition of the federal administration I, I you know i was talking to him and he's talking to me about how david Baugh's talking about how you know yeah he's he's on the phone with the la based testing company because right now all of all of the testing that we're doing right now is being covid under- testing Yes, COVID, Mm -hmm. yes, we're talking about schools. A math test right now. No math tests, although sometimes COVID testing can feel like a math test. Um, But I mean, truly, we're still using coronavirus relief funds that were left over from the CARES Act, and those expire on December 30th. And so, you know, all of a sudden you've got superintendents on the phone with private sector testing companies in L.A. that they've been utilizing, but now they have to reimagine that contract for what happens after you know that December 30th and those monies go away, and he kept referencing, I think we're, co- I can confidently say, I think we're going to be okay through January 21st. If I could just get through January 21st, it was laughable how long it took me, and it was like, oh my gosh, he's waiting for the inauguration of Joe Biden because, and he, and he said it explicitly. He said, you know, and I've heard this from a lot of public health officials from you know the state level to our local level. There has just not been any cohesive direction. On COVID-19 management from the federal level. And it's, you know, you think, oh, it's the federal level, it's so far away, it's so big, you know, there's a lot of space between me living my life in Aspen, until you realize, no, the superintendent of your local school district is literally pinning his hopes and dreams on COVID-19 management and getting kids back into classrooms in a responsible way. Once that transition happens. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, you're wanting to get through the 21st. That's not giving uh that's not giving our new president much time <laughs> to get those communications down to Aspen School District. Um, but that that was something that was really interesting to me. I never expected a pandemic to be so
1: politicized, but that that has been the American reality through all of this. Wow. Are they holding their breath to see who the new education secretary will be? I do believe so, yeah. Yeah.
2: Wow. I- so, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, cautious optimism that I hope is not misplaced. Uh, but it was it was really interesting to be talking about okay, so what's the schedule look like? You know, how are you going to manage this? And all of a sudden, you're talking about transition of power in in the next chapter of American democracy. Not the uh, not the pivot that I was expecting.
0: <laughs> how how vital is the testing strategy to getting kids in school? It sounds like I mean they were the first entity to bring mass free testing to our community. And just within the last month ish, um, now that we're, you know, we're 10 months into a pandemic. So the school was kind of leading on testing strategy at that point. I'm wondering if they have a cohesive way of making sure everyone stays safe or making sure tests are doled out evenly. Like, what what did they say about how they're going to use those tests? So
2: that's a really good question, and one that when I spoke to him on was it Friday that I had that conversation with him? I believe it was, and he was um, he was talking to curative representatives on Monday. So okay. yes, he would have had that conversation. So good reminder that I I owe uh, Dave a call. <laughs> 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 but as far as concrete price tags and things of that nature, that was some of the the details oh, hoping to suss out on Monday. Um, He did tell me that he had been given the impression that there are some fundraising opportunities and some donors, maybe through AEF, that would Mm -hmm. be willing to make sure that that continues at least through January 21st, um, (laughs) the ballpark numbers that they were working with. So um, I, I do think it's a really important part, but it is only a part, right? Like the five contain, like the five commitments of containment, you know, making sure you're socially distant, making sure that you're wearing masks, making sure that you are not sending your child to school if they are even remotely symptomatic, even if it's more convenient for you because it means you as a parent get to go to work that day. Um, You know, that, that's still, those are still the pillars that, the administration is turning to those are still the pillars that public health officials at every level are still touting. But the testing is, I think, really important. You know, I I have heard several people speak when they did have to go. Uh, have to go, excuse me, fully remote again, Um, there was a lot of gratitude expressed that, thank goodness, even though this is highly inconvenient and still scary, thank goodness it was a response to really a quarantine outbreak, not a COVID-19 outbreak, and You know, that was really thanks to that testing program because they did catch a couple of asymptomatic students and, you know, they were able to quarantine and do that contact tracing accordingly. And it unfortunately resulted in such a wide net that there wasn't staff reasonably to continue in-classroom learning models. At least it was out of an abundance of caution as opposed to reacting to a much worse alternative reality, right?
0: I think you've both covered this, but Megan, one narrative with the schools that we've heard throughout is the, or at least throughout the summer leading back up to fall when we didn't know if it'd be in person or some hybrid was the teacher's comfort. Um, and, And we spoke with the union, right? And, and I think the teachers were far beyond, far behind in their comfort level from what the district administration was hoping for. Has that sussed out or are we still hearing from the union? Do we, are, are teachers feeling forced into the classroom?
2: It seems like they've found a middle ground. Um, you know, I did a tour of the classrooms in advance, and uh, there's been a lot of autonomy given to teachers at the individual classroom level. They really are the ones who were able to put into place systems um, and, and even down to the interior decor and the logistics of, you know, how do you want your plexiglass on tables separating students or how do you want to arrange your desks and how much plexiglass do you want around your desk? And they um, they really were given the opportunity to create an environment specifically that they felt most safe with. And that seemed to be a nice compromise um, that, that did bring teachers back into the building knowing that, okay, it's not like they're going to be told, Hey, you have to come into this classroom and it has to be arranged this way. And it doesn't matter if you don't feel great about it. Right. Um, They really were able to, you know, do their own research. And I know every one of them has been doing their own research as I think a lot of us have been because they are the ones on the front lines being exposed. Um, So the answer is nobody's 100% happy. There's still some discomfort. There's a lot of trepidation, but it's far less tenuous than it was when, you know, letters were being delivered to the administration threatening strikes. Uh,
0: Madeline, I'm going to turn to you as our um, now resident expert with the Aspen Airport and okay. the plans um, moving forward with that. It's just so hilarious because we had headlines this week from you that sound like we're about to get a brand new airport. We have a plan and it's been approved. And I think the reality is that means we have finished step zero exactly. <laughs> and can start into step one. But um, let's talk about there was a it's, it's called the ASE Vision Committee Common Ground Recommendations. So it's these committee recommendations were approved by the and county commissioners. What does that mean as far as steps <laughs> in this process?
1: Well, that's the first step. Now that they can share, once they go to second reading, which is supposed to be December 16th, and there's a public hearing, and if people want to submit comments, they can do that by December 11th. So heads up. And I would imagine there would be, I don't know if there's Certainly. new, it like, uh, people have taken, staked out their positions. I don't know if anybody's movable at this point. So um, this allows, once this document has 15 recommendations, it has like 95 sub-recommendations. Sub oh gosh an exhaustive review first of all and then well first it was put together this document you know a lot of voices over an 18 month period almost 18 months and over 100 i mean and it's been raised by i think um, ellen anderson's one of the main opponents that only 63 people voted on it well that might be true but in the input was over 100 people and i think it's fair and you know there are a lot of good things that have come out of that i think the county commissioners you know, they wanted clean energy they want to safe safety is number one and then clean aircraft is another and it will get down to the minutiae about the number of gates and you know what kind of planes can land here but right now we're at a, a larger more of a vision document once this passes on second reading they can share it with the airlines and the faa and i think that's why some of the opponents had a little trepidation because this does open the floodgates now i mean not that there's going to be i don't think the airlines are in any position right now to say well i want to bring a big plane in here because they don't necessarily have them and we all know what's happened with air travel um and you know hopefully there are some safeguards built into there i think general aviation remains sort of a a wild card there but they have some good, they have a reservation system that was proposed. Um, I think it's a good framework and it was a very thoughtful doc, document, uh, resolution 105, 2020. Um, <laughs> so, um, and so we will report next week if it passes on second reading. I think that there's a, a real wish to have George Newman have the vote on it because he's been involved in the process. And, and as we know, George will be stepping off the BOCC soon. Good job, George.
0: Well, yeah, what a way to wrap up that tenure. Um, yeah. And just to speak about a little bit about that, um, the controversy that might be around this plan is, is that the plan is to, to update the airport, right? So definitely anyone who doesn't want the airport updated is not going to be for any of the recommendations. Cause they're all the, the, the point of the exercise was if we're going to update the airport, what are the ways we would do it to reflect our community for our priorities? So there's going to be, but the plan was never, should we update it or not? I don't think.
1: No, I agree. I think that there was a need because the terminal, you know, and that's like for Patty Clapper, that's the most important thing right now. Okay. I can accept some of the airside improvements as long as we get the, the new terminal. And that will be the first because that I think has the least amount of hurdles.
0: <laughs> and still, I mean, a decade out, right? This is not just yeah. because <laughs> the, com- the community advisory um, document might get approved next week. That doesn't mean that we're breaking ground this spring.
1: No, but uh, you know, I don't know if it'll be a decade out. There's no specific timetable. Things could happen quickly. Okay. We'll see, but I don't think it's gonna be you know, three years. And then there are safeguards built in that other things have to be voted on. So, and there will be more public review and they're starting an advisory committee. So the BOCC will interview for people on that like they do boards and commissions, which is good. So there won't be any uh, you know, f- bias or this perception of bias, but we'll see.
0: Excellent. Well, multiple ways for the public to get involved in that conversation. Then um, I'm glad you shared that here. We're going to turn, I mean, obviously one reason we would need an airport is so people can come here and ski. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to turn to skiing, um, both how it's been. I think Madeline, you got to speak to SkiCo after opening weekend. I mean, it's, it's up lifts are running. we got two mountains yeah. open. Are we seeing practice, social distancing? Are we seeing people following the rules? How's it going? I think
1: people love the ability to ride the gondola with just themselves or with (laughs) the close pals or family. Uh, And they, they have, you know, good for SkiCo for running those auxiliary lifts, because honestly, it's a lot cheaper to just run two lifts. Just run the Gandhi and and chair three, you know, you, you open up the couch, you have lift one. Now Ruthie's is open, you know, from a business point of view those that that all costs money. It's labor and it's electricity or gas or whatever they So more patrol you need to span. So I think I, you know, I don't know if they're thrilled. It seems to be, I think that they are doing a really good job with social distancing and boy, you have someone has their mask down a little over their nose. Get that, get that up. So good.
0: Yeah. I've seen a couple of corrections, but honestly I get like um, shell shocked a little bit when I see someone's mouth at gondola plaza right now because I would say almost everyone is following the rules and you know it's in the mask zone anyway downtown Aspen you shouldn't be seeing smiles as you walk around right. Aspen this winter. Um, so when I see that and I just get so frustrated I had one moment in line where a guy was told to put his mask up but as soon as the ski co employee walked away he took it back down. And i didn't know if i wanted to be like the crazy person in line yelling first thing in the morning um but like it's just so clear to me that if you have your mask down you're not from here and i think one thing about aspen is people try and like oh i'm kind of from here i have a second home i come here a lot so i'm a local this is going to be your number one symbol that you're not here because whether you believe in the masks or not the way to stay open is for skiko to prove that they have you know, rules in place that people are following. We just have to make sure that we're not becoming the spreader location, right? So whether you think the mask works or not, if you're not wearing it, you don't care if we're, our season continues. And if you don't care, you must not be from here. I think it's just so everyone's got their eyes on, let's just keep the mountains open this winter.
1: Well, that will be the new litmus test. And, and like the person skiing in jeans, it's the person <laughs> with the mask down. <laughs> um. I
2: always wear a face mask just in general. And then I realized, oh my God, I'm gonna have to buy new face masks for the pandemic winter because I always, local shout out, snow bandits. Um, Pablo is a buttermilk guy and he makes these fabulous face masks that are like glorified felt inlined, you know, um, bandana style that fit perfectly with your goggles but they have vents. On, like there's little holes on your mouth so that you don't fog up your goggles. And I realized, well, that defeats the
1: purpose.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to have to do a little shopping before I get on the hill this year.
0: Yeah, I, I'm hoping fashion masks um, are just as in as like bunny suits on the hill. I will be right there with that trend. Trust me, one of the things I was thinking of in like the fake rage fight I was having with the man in front of me um, was you wear the mask anyway. Honestly, any other year that... That buff yeah. would be in front of your face. So, what you're taking it down this year because you're trying to be defiant. And it's just, it's, you know, our, the entire economy mm-hmm. is on the fold of us not having uh, to go into the red zone. And so, put it up, dude. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting is what COVID or not, we're actually not having a great ski year as in terms of weather. So, we are in a drought. We don't have enough snow on highlands for it to open this weekend as scheduled. It's been pushed back a week though. I don't know that the five inches over the next three days that we're predicted to get is gonna be enough to open Highlands, right? So um, making it to the point where we had a fire breakout in December. So, you know, this is what we would be talking about. This would be a week's worth of news that Highland was being pushed back because of the changing environment, right? Except for that we also have COVID, but this is a big deal that, um, that Mother Nature is not cooperating.
2: Yeah, I am, um, you know, come on, La Nina. <laughs> I, had, I had such high hopes and I still have hopes that, you know, maybe we'll get a really solid later season. But yeah, I mean, we had near record drought levels throughout all of 2020 and that has continued into the winter season and you know we live down valley it's it's been 50 55 degrees all week and it feels like spring and I was like what is happening right now that you could just hear all of the fire trucks screaming down highway 133 and what was surprising to me was it wasn't just one little brush fire that was quickly contained um, near Carbondale at the Red Hill area of 82. Reefer, Roaring Fork Fire Rescue, also had a call up Mid Valley and um, Glenwood Springs fire had uh, three fires that they were on, um, both on 82 and I-70. And the working theory, the investigator that was on the scene at I-70 is that maybe there was some, a vehicle that was dragging something that was creating sparks. And for that comment and that diagnosis, to occur in December is insane to me. That's something I expect to hear in July. That is not something that you expect in December. Um, and yeah, no, we're still in fire season. We're, we're still dealing with drought. It's not nearly as bad as it would be in those you know summer months, but things are still very dry alongside the roads. And I can't tell you how grateful everyone I talked to in an official capacity from the fire departments were that we were reporting on it because people need to be reminded we are still in fire season right now, even though it's December. Um, and that's, it's not completely unheard of, but it's certainly, um, only in the last few years with, as, as we're seeing with climate change, you know, every, every year is drier than the last and hotter than the last. And, you know, now here we are in the second week of Uh, heading into the second week of December. And we're hopeful to maybe get a dusting of snow. Maybe we'll get five inches, as you said. And when I talked to Jeff Hanley about the announcement to delay opening highlands, You know, that's what that was basically what he said as well. He was like, listen, yeah, they've been doing a great job. The guys over at Ajax and Snowmass have been killing it. He was thrilled at what we were able to have open um, with how little natural snowfall we've had. But with Highlands, he's like, you know, we we talked about we know what's going to happen. We'll open up with what we've got. The locals will ski it out. And then, you know, if we don't get anything more from Mother Nature on Highlands, then we're not gonna. We'll have to close it again. You know. So let's just save what we have. Um, so it's. Uh, yeah. It seems like the perfect cherry on top to conclude 2020. Of course, we don't have any snow. <laughs> Why would we?
1: <laughs> well, I'm looking at my window right now at Highlands, and they did a great job. I mean, Golden Horn and Thunderbolt, and we skied there the one day they were open. Their little tees and everything. I think it's the transition areas because. You know, even farther up the mountain, like near Scarlet's looks pretty decent right now. And I'm always amazed at how little snow we can, we ski on. I mean, really a 10 inch base, you can, you can, as long as there's not a monster rock, that's enough snow to ski on. Yeah. we have to get used to lower our expectations maybe this year. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I'm still,
2: I'm so hopeful. I want, again, to your earlier point, I will be that jerk that, um, screams and, and is the crazy lady at the person pulling their mask down, just being petulant. Like, what is it? Like, are you kidding? If we get shut down in March again, right as Niña starts dumping and, and promising, <laughs> no, I will be so livid. I will be the anti-visitor shut down the airport. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll report on that if um, you have a, a <laughs> <everybody's Okay>. breakdown <laughs> in the middle of the gondola. But until such time, Megan Tack and Madeline Osberger, thank you both so much for joining me on the upload this week.
1: Thank you, Allison. Great time.
0: Thank you both. Thanks for listening to the upload. I'm your host and producer, Alison Bektesh. You can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you want to be on the show or do you have some thoughts you want to pass along? You can drop me a line at upload at AspenDailyNews.com. Thanks to Megan Tackett and Madeline Osberger for being on the show today. This is the Upload podcast from the Aspen Daily News. Listen. Discuss. Decide.